This episode brought to you by Audible, and today you can receive a free audiobook and 30-day free trial by visiting audibletrial.com slash richtakeonsports. Listen to your audiobook anywhere, anytime. Taking sports to another level. Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Exploring the latest headlines and going behind the scenes with in-depth interviews, hearing personal stories and the impact of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. What time is it? This is episode 56. I am your host, Richmond Weaver, and glad you're listening through whatever format that might be. And thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. Many times in life, we put limits on our own opportunities for success based on a multitude of factors. And many times, it's just as simple as not being confident in trying to do something new because of a fear of failure. Our guest this episode, Nelson Ferber, isn't one of those individuals, though. After turning down football scholarship opportunities, he embarked on a journey at Clemson University as a preferred walk-on playing wide receiver and special teams, ultimately earning a scholarship and was actually named Special Teams Player of the Year in 2008. From there, he earned his law degree from Florida State University. He joined the Air Force and served in Afghanistan after graduating from Officer Training School. And now he's embarking on the ultimate test of putting yourself out there as he's a candidate for South Carolina Secretary of State. And now, Episode 56 with Nelson Fairber. Well, Nelson, I can't thank you enough for spending some time with me today. Greatly appreciate it. And first and foremost, we've got to get it out there. Yeah. (laughs) How many times do you have to tell people the correct pronunciation of Fairber? (laughs) Growing up playing sports, I heard it on the... uh the radio and the announcers say it wrong all the time, so I'm numb to it. But how you say it is uh, fair, Burr. Uh, most, most of the time people get caught up on the E and they, they keep thinking to say Faber. But it's Fairber, and I probably correct people not as much as I should just because I, I'm numb to it and I don't hear it. But it happens, it happens often. It's I, a German name, so. So it's spelled F A E R B E R, but it's pronounced F A I R, like fair. Yeah. Fairber. Exactly. Perfect. Well, we've got that out of the way. And <laughs> the other thing, just, just looking at your background, I would have to say that. I feel inadequate when I see all that you've done, especially at a younger age. You set the career TD receptions record at your high school. You're a walk-on at Clemson University, and eventually you go to law school. You join the Air Force, serve in Afghanistan. Yeah. You marry a former Miss <laughs> South Carolina. That's probably my biggest accomplishment. <laughs> you outkicked your coverage yeah. there, right? <laughs> and now you recently announced that you're running for the South Carolina Secretary of State. So have you always been this overachiever? You know, I, I've often looked at my life as um, I have a certain amount of talent, and I can't change that. That's, that's God-given. But... There's nothing I can do to change that. Even if you know my, the level of talent's high or low, in whatever aspect I'm I'm approaching in life, whether that's sports or, or school or the military, but the one thing I can change is my work ethic. And so I often pride myself in my work ethic, always exceeding whatever talent level I have. 
And so when we, if we break it down uh, into first sports, you know, about 16 years ago, I was a good football player, but I had a strong work ethic. And so I was able to uh, separate myself just through commitment and dedication to playing and, and just the details that, that matter. And that was how I was able to separate myself. Not because I was more talented, but it was because I was willing to work harder. And so when I was uh, 16, I was getting recruited to play football in college, which was a dream of mine. Never dreamed past playing football at the highest level possible. For me, it ended up being college football in the ACC, but I, that was my dream in life, was to, to go as far as I could. And so, you know, working hard, I was able to get some football scholarships. The Air Force Academy offered me a scholarship. The Naval Academy offered me a scholarship. But there were a few schools that were interested in, I don't know if it was new around the time, but it's a program called Preferred Walk-Ons, where they help you get into the school, and then you're allowed to have an opportunity to compete. And so Dabo, being a walk-on at Alabama, you know, for whatever reason, he took a liking to me. Maybe it was you know, my work ethic, or maybe and he when saw... when did you first meet Dabo? Oh, 16 years ago, probably 2003. It, it, it's been some time. So he, uh, and he has not changed. He is the same person now <laughs> than he was then. It's just he has a bigger stage now and more people get to see the Dabo-isms that I saw for the past, you know, 15, 16 years. But uh, yeah, so he, he brought me up to Clemson for a, a visit just to see the school. And oftentimes people say who, who attend Clemson, they say there's something in the hills. It's very easy to fall in love with the upstate, which that's good for Dabo. You know, he's, he's, he's a good salesman in the first place. But when you get to sell the area that's already easy for people to fall in love with, you know, he, he, he finds success at Clemson. Yeah. It's just, it's beautiful, whether that's the sunsets or the weather or the people, right? So I fell in love with the area, but I obviously fell in love with the people. I met my wife here, so, you know, it's, it's just great. It's, it's as good as you can get. Now, going back to those early days, though, this work ethic that you're describing, where did that come from? You know, I, I have mentors in life. Uh, and sometimes they're five years ahead of me. Sometimes they're 10 years ahead of me, or, or it could be, you know, my father, or, you know, whatever it is. But I saw some players uh, make it to play in, in uh, college football, which at the time, that's what my aspiration was. So Charlie Whitehurst was a football, uh, he was a quarterback at Clemson, and he was four years older than me. And I looked at him and his work ethic and what he was able to achieve at Clemson. And when you're 16 years old and you see somebody who is achieving your dream and they're coming from the same place you're coming from, that gives you some inspiration. And so I think at that time, it's people like Charlie Whitehurst. Uh, and when I got to Clemson, you got you know, Kevin Youngblood or A. Reese Curley, you know, the wide receivers that really, really made a difference uh, for the team, really put us on a trajectory to where we are today. That's the people who, who helped me develop my work ethic. Because if they're working hard, why, you know, why should I? Why should I let somebody else outwork me uh, and take my, the opportunity that I want in life? And when did you first remember getting into sports? What um, age yeah, were you? I'm, I'm very fortunate that my father, if I could do what he did, uh, he attended every sporting event I've had in my life. And so when I was five, I was playing baseball, playing football, and he would uh, just he would either coach the team or he'd be there to support me. And it was a difference maker. If you can imagine what it's like in your life to have that sort of support at a young age of five and, and have that cheerleader in your corner, um, that's, that's really where my, my desire in sports began. Sports translates to life, too. You know, it, it, the work ethic that I've you know, learned through sports, I've been able to apply in every aspect of my life. And so uh, that's, that's where it began, but I couldn't have done it without you know, 
my parents. And I'm just on the other side of that in terms of 180 degree difference. I never knew my biological father. And so I didn't have that. So from my perspective now, being a father of three, I've been making it a point to attend as much as I can. So I know that obviously had a huge impact on you because it was a void for me growing up that I didn't have that involvement. That's, that's very powerful for me because I, I can't imagine where I would be without, you know, and, and then you start thinking about it in an an alternative universe where if that did not exist, would I have had what I needed to get to where I am today? I admire people who are able to do what you've done, where you, know, you, you recognize something that is of value to your children, and, and so you feel that for them. Because I think it's, especially with sports at a young age, that's one of the first places where you get to instill discipline and work ethic in a person. And if you're there as a father figure and helping your kids, or if you're not even a father, if you're just participating in a local club and you're doing that for people who don't have fathers, I mean, maybe that's what you were able to benefit from as a child, was there's somebody in your life that, that took you under their wing for sports. Because it, 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 it is so important for uh, the foundation of a person's life, yeah. in my opinion. It, for me, sports was my safe haven, my escape, and it was those coaches and other teammates yeah. that gave me that loving environment yes. that I was missing. Yeah. Now, what sport did you love the most growing up, though? So I was, I was a good baseball player. Uh, I, I love football the most, so I'll start, answer the question, say football. But I was a good baseball player when I was... Uh, I'd say middle school, I was playing a travel league baseball team. I was, you know, the, the first uh, batter and the center fielder. I've, I've been fast my entire life. And so, and that's usually where you put those players is that they get at the bat first, you try to get them on base, and then you put them in center field so they can run and uh, snag the balls in, in the outfield. Uh, and so I was playing on a travel league team, and that was exhausting. Uh, we played probably 180 games in a season. It felt like it was nonstop. And at that age, you could get burnt out really quick doing that. And so my, I, you know, I was good at baseball. And I think a lot of it has to do with just repetitions. We're playing so much that I was able to uh, become you know, a better athlete. That's true in every aspect of life. When I, later on, when I become an attorney, the more reps I got in the courtroom, the better I got, right? So I was good at baseball, but I love love football. Uh, I love hitting people. That, that's, you know, I'm 180 pounds, but I love, love contact. Uh, and so uh, when I, once I got to high school and, uh, and, and my dream was still football, that's, that's when I started to separate baseball from football. Yeah. How early was that when you had that moment of clarity that I want to play college football? Uh, when I, a freshman in high school. That's when you start, you know, you're playing on the freshman team, there's a JV team and there's a varsity team. And I'm looking up at the varsity team saying, I think I'm good enough to play on that team right now. And, oh, I, I think I can play beyond that. So it was probably my freshman year of high school. And now, were you more of a college football fan or a college, college. sports fan than pros? Yeah. yeah. So college football has always been, I mean, it's just sacred. Yeah. Yeah. The NFL is great, but college football is just pure. And it's a lot of emotion. And people who you know, would otherwise not be involved in sports feel this tie to their university. And it's just passion. Like, they bleed it. And so, especially in the South, especially, you know, where we're, where we're sitting right now, it's just, it's part of the grain of society. And that, you know, that's true for, for NFL in certain parts of the country, but I think uh, in the South, it helps. Now, were there teams that you followed as a young kid or in high school? Obviously, Charlie yeah. Whitehurst going to Clemson. Yeah, that was, so imagine you that played a didn't role. know Clemson. That played a, Charlie going to Clemson played a huge, huge role in my life. 
Uh, and I think he knows that too. But uh, yeah, I, I, I liked players growing up. I wasn't necessarily tied to a team. And so what players then? Oh, uh, I, I, I mean, Charlie was one of the first people that, that jumped to mind. I can remember some players like Clemson, like Yusef Kelly, that was you know, a monster. And then when you show up on campus, you're like, that guy's bigger in person than he is on TV. <laughs> and so, yeah, a lot of it has to do with the Clemson team. I don't, I don't go back and think of uh, any, any players, players that I ended up playing against, like Reggie Ball at, at Georgia Tech, and uh, I played against him in high school. And, um, but there was really nobody else that really stuck out to me until once I got, you know, in high school, and I saw Charlie go to Clemson, and then my mind kind of just gravitated to Clemson. So what was the appeal to military? So I, uh, I still remember the coaches that were recruiting me from the Air Force Academy and the Naval Academy, and they were, I mean, they are good at their job. And I, I, when you're 16 years old and you're being faced with the opportunity to serve in the military, you have to have a certain maturity level to say, I, I'm willing to commission into, into the, Air, the Air Force or the Navy after I, I serve. And at that time, you know, if, if you take me back to that time, I, I was thinking about playing football at the highest level, right, which included the NFL. And so uh, for whatever reason, the academies, it, it is very difficult for you to transition from the academy to the NFL because you have that military commitment afterwards. Uh, so that probably was a big distinguishing factor for me. It also didn't satisfy that thirst I had to play in front of 80,000 people. You know, you get that in Death Valley every single Saturday. That's not so much at an academy. Now that I think about it, I, I could have, you know, at Harvard, I, I took a visit to Harvard too, and they have a beautiful stadium. But one of their selling points to me was I would have the lowest SAT to ever enter Harvard, but I would be able <laughs> to play football there. And my, you know, my mom was like, oh, you gotta take that. But uh, they just, it, that didn't quench the thirst of playing. There's no 80,000 no, cheering not, fans no, at Harvard, no. right? I don't even think they have lights on their stadium to where you can play at night. So it didn't, it didn't fill that thirst for me. What was that like then, the first time you get to run down the hill yeah. in Death Valley, 80,000 fans yeah. going crazy? It's, one, it's, it's louder than you could ever expect. I can remember, before that, all you have to go on is other people's experiences. So you'll get a lot of people who tell you you feel like a king at the top of the hill. And I can remember feeling like a king at the top of the hill. You know, you just feel special. And if you think about your, your mindset going into a game and you feel that support and encouragement from your fans, I mean, that opening kickoff, you're going to rip someone's head off because of that. So it, what that does for the, the psyche of a team before a game, I don't think you can match that with, with other uh, college football atmospheres. And so it's special, I mean, no doubt. Uh, I know from a fan perspective, sitting in the fans, watching the team run down the hill, the feeling is very palpable in terms of just the intensity, the excitement. So I can't imagine yeah. being on the hill yep. itself. It's almost emotional it is. as a fan. So yeah. how emotional is it for you? So, you know, it, the, it actually, I think when I, when I think back to the last few times I ran down the hill, that was, that was the feeling of emotion that I can remember where you're like, I only have a couple more of these left. That was very emotional. Uh, and the last thing you want to do is to let your emotions get in the way of the game plan, right? But that, that can happen towards the end of your career. Uh, at the beginning, it's more, of, uh, it's more of an excitement that's created within you. Were you ever nervous of falling <laughs> as you're running down? <laughs> you know, uh, there was a player that fell the year before I got there. And I want to say he, he hurt something in his knee. 
uh, I know his name, but I'm not going to say it. He wouldn't want me to. <laughs> and he was, uh, he was the holder, also a wide receiver, but... Uh, okay, he, we're pinpointing yeah, some players yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, thankfully, it didn't, you know, he could still participate in the game because he was the holder. And uh, But yeah, he had a knee injury from running down the hill. So I was I was aware, don't don't jump too high. <laughs> because if you land wrong, then it could, it could take you down. <laughs> and what was the, what was the game that was the loudest that you remember? Yeah, uh, if you can remember Miami, it was a 3.30 game on ABC. And it was uh, a sack late in the game, and on the Richter scale, it was you know it was up there. It was like higher than like a, a Boeing 747 taken off. That at the time I think had the uh, the record for the loudest environment in a college football game. Uh, so that was by far the loudest game. And other louder games I can remember playing Florida State on uh, Labor Day on a Monday, and it was a night game. And that was loud. You know, that was loud. And was there a difference between night games versus day games? I think the closer to noon you get, the more slow it is to start. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, people are having fun. They enjoy the game. And Clemson fills the stadium early. You know, you don't need to worry about a kickoff when there's half the people in the stadium. Some stadiums, it is like that. Uh, Death Valley, you never have that problem. But the later it is in the afternoon or the night, man, it gets loud. <laughs> when... Coach Bowden finally offers you a scholarship after you've been a walk-on. Mm-hmm. Did you know it was coming, or was it a complete surprise? That's probably one of the, the most special moments in my life. I did not know it was coming. It was after my redshirt freshman year. And so what a football team would do, uh, and, and I imagine this is the same for every school, not just unique to Clemson, but they will review their scholarships after uh, signing day, and they'll see where there's room to offer a walk-on a scholarship. Now, scholarships are awarded on a year-by-year basis. Just because you are put on scholarship doesn't mean you're going to keep it the next year or the next year after that. And you usually don't see that being a problem with those who come to Clemson on a scholarship, but eventually you'll see people who transfer or things like that. So as a walk-on, once I'm put on scholarship, there's no guarantee the next year I have it or the next year I have it. So I can remember... You have to continue to keep working. you got to earn it. Uh, There's got to be something the coaches remember, like... this is why he needs to keep it. Uh, and so I was a redshirt freshman. Uh, at the time, we did not have the facilities that we have today. It is amazing <laughs> to see how much. Uh, it's a big difference. It is huge. And so we were in a facility called Jervy at the time. And we had a team meeting room. Where that's, that's where we, when, anytime the team meeted, that was the big room that we went in. And so I can remember when, uh, when Tommy announced that I had received a scholarship that what was what's so memorable about it is how much support I had from my teammates at that time. They knew how hard I worked. They knew that, you know, I, I mean, I, you know, 185, 195 pounds, I was hitting heads with anybody. Uh, there were, I can remember, uh, I don't, Justin is, Justin Miller is one of the best athletes I've ever played with. There was a time, maybe I just caught him when he wasn't looking, but I decleated him on a, on a special team's and uh, that turned a lot of heads when I did that. And I know Justin, he had my, <laughs> he had my number after that. But, you know, things like that in practice where you're like, no kidding, this kid's going to, he's going to work. And he, it doesn't matter if you're the number one player on the team, he's going to hit you. And uh, so it was things like that that I think caught the attention of my teammates that I was working. And they, uh, when I was awarded the scholarship, it was just, you could feel it in the air how excited everybody was for me. And I'll never forget that. Those are your, that's your brothers, that's your family. 
And so uh, that that moment was very special for me. I called my dad at the time. You know, I, that that was the means by which I was going to be paying for my school through hard work, right? And so uh, I called him, and he just. He was proud of me, right? But he was also glad he didn't have to write any more checks. <laughs> exactly. It's yeah. a lot easier on that checkbook. It does. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that was that was a special moment for me, but it, it didn't end there because I had to every year I had to prove my worth. And so I was able to do that, you know. And did you find your niche? It was yeah. special teams. You knew that that's where you could Right. So my uh so my position was as a wide receiver. If you narrow it even further, I was a slot receiver. And so I was always a second string slot receiver. But when you, you know, Jacoby Ford was the guy who was in front of me. Jacoby ran like a, one of those type that runs like a 4 one or 4 two forty. He's just... But he's, now you're fast as well. So what yeah. you, what's your fastest 40? The fastest 40 I ever ran was on a track. Joey Batson, who's now, he's still the strength coach. He clocked it at 4 three, nine. So I could move. Yes. I was like the seventh fastest player on the team. Uh, but the fastest player was Jacoby. And CJ was obviously, they're just track athletes. And so uh, I would play with Jacoby, and we would send Jacoby on deep, deep routes all the time. And you can't, you just can't, you can't sustain that. And so Jacoby and I would rotate in and out. So I had a, a can't count how many catches I had. I know I had a couple of, uh, touchdowns on offense. And so offense was my passion. But I found that like coaches, they would they would substitute me in on special teams, and then all of a sudden I block a punt, and they're like, "Well, this kid's this kid's gonna hustle for us." And so. I ended up making, a, I think, my name on special teams. A block punt will do that. When you start seeing me you know, making tackles on kickoff coverage, you're like, you know, who's that kid? You know, where'd he come from? And so special teams was the biggest way I feel I was able to make an impact for the team. I've always had this notion that guys on special teams, there's something a little bit different because you're running yeah. <laughs> just you know as fast as you can go yeah. to hit somebody. You're right without any regard. So yeah. what's that mindset like <laughs> yeah. on a kickoff? And yeah. you know that Selfless. it's fast and hit, yeah. and that's all I got to do. Yeah, that's that's my job is to to rattle someone's cage. Uh, you know, uh, Coach uh, Andre Powell. He's at Pittsburgh now. And he's been around. I mean, he coached at UNC, been at Clemson for a while. At the time, he was our coach. And he, he dubbed those type of people liquor drinkers. For whatever reason, he was like, those people are crazy. <laughs> they are crazy. Yes, that's, that's my point. Yeah. So there is a different mentality you have to have when you're doing that. And a lot of that has to be a lot of disregard for your own well-being. You just, you just have to put the team above yourself. But that's, that's what special teams are How like. How often were you hurt? <laughs> Often, uh, <laughs> I can remember running into some some people that felt like walls, and I did not want to get up after that. Or you know, you know, the opposite would be true when you're on kickoff return and they're coming at you full speed. And so, uh, I can remember having plenty of singers. And uh, today, you may call them a concussion. <laughs> then, I don't know. They didn't have the concussion the, protocol uh, back then, right? I think we were counting them like we are now, which is a good thing that we are taking that into consideration. But I look back and think, wow, I wonder how many concussions I actually had. Do you remember distinctly being yeah, so, woozy and coming off the field like, I don't even know where I am? Well, I never had the, I, I'm not aware of my surroundings moment. But there were games where I did not have as many words to use because I was not thinking as clearly. 
but there were uh, more specifically teams that I remember where after those games you're just like Boston College has big players. One thing they would do with me on offense is they'd send me in motion. We'd have our line uh, crack down, say, to the right. I'd be going against the grain, and I'd take the, uh, the defensive end on. It usually would be a surprise to the defensive end because he'll hug against the tackle and, and you know, kind of like contain, and then you get this little, you know, 5'11", 180, just ball of fire under your chin. And I can remember hitting a few defensive ends against Boston College and... Man, <laughs> that was like... Was it like hitting a wall? It was, it was. Uh, so I'm sure there are plenty of, plenty of moments when I, um, you know, I could have benefited from these new helmets that they have. Yeah. And do you remember whoever hit you the hardest? Florida State hit the hardest. Uh, Boston College was the biggest. Florida State hit the hardest. Uh, I think of Florida State like gold teeth and tattoos. Like they were, <laughs> they were out there to just punish people. Uh, and so they, uh, they were, they were fast, and part of that has to do with how hard they're able to hit because they had some momentum behind them. Of course. Now, the other aspect is, you know, people talk about rivalries, yes. obviously in college football, and yeah. talk about their intensity. Yeah. You've been a part of a yeah. very intense rival, Clemson and South Carolina. Yeah. So w- describe that intensity and what it's really like out on the field. So it's a healthy respect for each other, the players. Uh, and I think the fans are respectful of each other for the most part. And you have to be able to appreciate your opponent uh, because if you don't respect uh, the, your opponent to their skill level, they will will take advantage of you on the playing field. And so we'll start from a, 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 a you know, there's a, a respect for each other. But after that, there's hatred. <laughs> you know, you, you know, you can't. Just pure and simple. Yeah, I had teachers telling me at Clemson that I don't care if you lose every single game, you will beat South Carolina. And so that's that's what it's like in this in this state, especially when you're, you know, there's no NFL team per se in, in, in the state, so people gravitate to college football pretty heavily. You know, you get you know the Panthers and the Falcons outside the state, but for the most part, people care about who wins this game. And so South Carolina was always big on our radar. South Carolina week is also right after Thanksgiving. And so for, as a student athlete, you don't have as much class before the game. And so you better be watching a lot more film that week than you would be other weeks. And so we go into that game with much more preparation, at least uh, time in, fr- in the film room watching the other team play, uh, which is good for, you know, it's, it's good for you when, you when you're able to prepare for a game that's that important to uh, your fans. And so it's always competitive. Uh, you will always get their best shot. And so the reverse is true. You know, South Carolina is always going to get Clemson's best shot in that game. And while I was at Clemson, we were fortunate. We had a you know, winning record against South Carolina. Tommy Bowden did a pretty, I mean, you know, people have their opinions on how he coached. I love him. as a, you know, He is a father figure for a lot of players. He you know, taught me a lot about football that I didn't know about before I arrived at Clemson. And he had a good record against South Carolina, which probably is most important to Clemson fans. Uh, but that's that's what it's like playing in that game. Is And you had arguably, I guess, your best game. Yeah. Score a touchdown, yeah. receiving, and you block a punt yeah. that gets returned for a touchdown yeah. in a close victory. Yeah, we won by two points. Yeah, what was that like? So that, that has everything to do with... Uh, not knowing when your number is going to be called and being prepared when that happens. There are a lot of times in everybody's life when their number is going to be called and they may have not prepared for that moment. I was prepared for the moment, especially in that game. 
And so in that game... And so why were you so prepared for that moment? Because it matters. You know, it matters to your teammates. And if you're the, the, the first string, the second string, or the third team player at Clemson, if you care about each other enough, you're going to do what you can. And you, you don't know how many games go by and that second string quarterback... You know, he was ready to play if that first-string quarterback went out, right? That has to do everything to do with just you know, a passion about you know, your work ethic, a pride about who you are as a person. And so that's, you know, there's, there's going to be a lot of college football and, and at, at the same level, at, you know, high school and the NFL, players who may not get that number called, but they were ready to support their teammates. Uh, and a lot of this transitions to the military, too. Uh, I think about when you, you know, we can talk about this later, but when you deploy... Uh, being ready when your number's called type thing. Uh, so for this game specifically, you know, there, there was going to be no way in which I would, would not have been prepared if my number was called. And it was. Uh, thankfully, uh, I, I would, you know, opportunities come in life, and that was one of them, and I was not going to let that get away from me. Uh, so in that game, uh, first quarter, there was... Uh, uh, we were doing pretty well. I think the opening play, we had an interception. Uh, Chris Chancellor, who's now a police officer in Clemson, intercepted the opening pass. And so we, we already silenced the stadium. Uh, and we, I think we had scored a touchdown at that point, helped put them down to a, a three and out. And Coach Blackwell, uh, David, David uh, he's now at East Carolina. It's funny how there's two jobs, and I'll, I'll get back to the end, but there's two types of coaches in college football, coaches that have been fired and coaches that have not been fired yet. <laughs> and I got that from uh, Bobby Bowden, so it's, yeah. it's no surprise to anybody. Uh, so a lot of these coaches that I talk about now, they're, they're doing great things at other programs, not because, you know, sometimes they just get better opportunities, and so they end up just taking those jobs. But uh, it's exciting to see what they're able to do uh, once they leave. So anyway, uh, three and out from South Carolina, Coach Blackwell calls a block from the left side. So he calls my number. And at the time, the, the person who was responsible for blocking me was their starting running back. And, um, you know, I, I you know, just, has in football it has everything to do with just, you know, deception, right? You want them to believe you're going one way and you're going the other. And I did the same thing uh, and was able to get clean and fast enough. Uh, Suckup was the punter. He's now playing in the NFL, and he's been playing in the NFL ever since he left. Long time. He's a good player, so he's going to get, when he gets that snap, he's going to get that punt off fast. So there is, there is very little room for error on something like that. And so, thankfully, you know, the stars aligned, and we blocked the punt, and Ludante Harris was, uh, you know, when you, when you call a play like that, you have people specifically ready to, you know, scoop and score. Uh, and Vladante was right there. He scooped the ball, scored, and all of a sudden, I think it was 14-0 in the first quarter, and it was silent. <laughs> there was no better noise than silence in, in William Bryce Stadium. And so that's, that's how that game Because that's a loud place as well. That's one of my favorite stadiums to play in. It, it, their fans are so passionate. And it's not, it's, you know, when you go into some other schools and when, when you don't have as much of a following as South Carolina follows their team, it's exciting. It's fun. But, you know, it's, it's better when you have an, another team like South Carolina that is just, their fans are top tier, right? And so uh, there have been plenty of moments in, in my career versus South Carolina when they had, they had reasons to get very loud. <laughs> and did you feed off of more of the energy of playing at home or feeding off of the ability to silence the crowd on the road? Yeah, so uh, when you're an offensive player, uh, when you're at home, the crowd respects you know, the need for you to be able to communicate with each other. So it gets, you know, thankfully it gets quiet when you're playing in Death Valley 
as an offensive player. Now it gets really loud in Death Valley when you're a defensive player and that's the way you want it. Now when you're in an away stadium and you're on offense, they are going to be loud. Uh, and so when you're able to silence the uh, a crowd when you're, when you're playing an away game, that helps a lot for an offense. And so that, that makes a difference, when, especially when you have a, a crowd that has the capability of getting, you know, they can disrupt the cadence, you know, you, you can't communicate with each other, all of a sudden you're off sides and it's because you can't hear the quarterback. And so when you're able to silence a stadium, that can change the momentum of the game. Were there ever times that you remember that you're lined up in the slot and thinking, I don't even know what the quarterback just said. I can't hear anything. I'm in trouble. Yeah. So, yes. Uh, we played a few games in the, in the Atlanta Dome, and there were a few times when it got so loud in there, I couldn't hear anything. Now, if you're a wide receiver, it, it's probably better for you to be deaf because all you got to do is watch the ball, you know. But uh, if, you're, if you're a running back or a lineman, then you need to communicate a little bit, little bit better. Uh, so, yeah, there were times when it was hard to communicate with each other and we do the same thing today that we did back then where we, we would signal in place. And so you really didn't have to speak uh, too much as a wide receiver because you're just reading hand signals. Uh, it's all about watching. It is. It is. It's all, it's all, it's all visual. And uh, when we do play away games, we will on Thursday before uh, you know, our last practice, we'll do walkthroughs on Friday, but Thursday is our last practice, they will, they will pump in crowd music. So you get used to not being able to hear each other. And so we prepare for that on away games anyway. Now going back to Tommy Bowden, who you mentioned his mentor, like a father figure, and obviously he yep. ends up giving you a scholarship. But now in 2008, mid-season after a loss to Wake Forest, yep. he decides to step down. Yep. So how did you become aware of that, and how were you told that he was stepping down? Yeah, so... I remember that like it was yesterday. Uh, we, uh, at that time, again, I was playing special teams, and uh, I, one of the things I got pretty good at was taking people off their feet on special teams, and uh, I was doing a kickoff return, and I, t I say this because I think it was Coach Bowden's last coaching moment, <laughs> at Clemson at least. Uh, and so a guy's coming down the field at me, and I just declean him, right? When a guy's on the ground, you know, do you wait for him to get back up and shove him down again, or do you just lay on top of the guy, right? Uh, and so I just laid on top of the guy, and he wasn't going to make the tackle on that play, so I just laid out, didn't hold him, but just put my body weight on top of him. And so I can remember a coaching moment with Tommy where it was like, you know, am I crossing the line to holding a player, right? So it's, you know, kind of like interpreting the rules a little bit. Like, it, am I allowed to do that? No, there was no flag thrown or anything like that. But we wanted to make sure the next time I knock somebody on the ground that I didn't do something wrong. And so I can remember talking through that with, with just watching the film with Tommy in the, in the room and getting his input and, uh, and then him leaving the room. And uh, within the hour, uh, you know, he called a team meeting and, and said that he was going to step down at that point. Uh, and, and so that was my perspective of when Tommy left uh, you know, the head position on a football. Was that a shock to you? Clemson at the time was such a hot seat uh, for a head coach, and I think you know that those. I actually, that's another Bobby Bowden quote. You know, he, he, I felt like when he was watching from the outside, and that he felt like his son was always on the hot seat. And I think that's true. I, I think we hold our coaches to a very high standard. I wasn't uh, surprised. Uh, I, you know, at best is the standard at Clemson, and when you're not meeting that, uh, it, 
maybe it's time to go into a different direction. But that's tough. Uh, that's tough. Then how did you feel when <laughs> Coach Sweeney is named interim head coach? Yeah, so Dabo was my position coach, right? So up until that moment, which, you know, four and a half years at Clemson, counting the year that I redshirted, I saw Dabo every single day. And, you know, Dabo can talk. Uh, when we'd have position, we called them segment meetings, if it was an hour and a half or two hours of film, Dabo would talk for 90 minutes and then we'd watch film for 30 minutes. It's just, he's just, <laughs> he's got to get his words out. <laughs> and it's all inspiring, right? Like things that I won't forget, things that mold me for my, you know, become a man, not just a football player. But when Dabo became the head coach, he had a much greater responsibility than just, you know, making sure the wide receivers show up on Saturday. And so I actually saw Dabo less once he became the head coach because I, you know, we, we kind of lost him as our wide receivers coach. But I, 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 we, we know what Dabo's made of. Uh, Were the players surprised that Dabo was named interim coach rather than one of the coordinators? Right, right. Well, so one of the things that we did at Clemson at that time, at least, was rotate the assistant head coach. And I think Tommy did that because it gave assistant coaches a bump in pay every you know, every so years. That year, it just happened to be that Dabo was the assistant head coach. And so I think that is how he naturally progressed from assistant to the head coach. So in that regard, I don't think anyone was surprised because in the pecking order, that, that would make sense. You know, that it, it, and what was the locker room like at that time? Were you guys unified after Tommy leaves and Dabo was there, or was there... I don't you know, think some conflict within the locker room. I, th I think the goal remained the same. You know, there were, I can think of, you know, quarterback issues with, um, between Tommy and, and that starting quarterback at that time. And I don't know if, if for that player, if it was liberating for him to be able to be under a, a new start. So in some regards, maybe it helps some players that they feel like they, you know, they're answering to a different person, maybe. Uh, but I didn't feel like there was any division in the locker room because of it. But it, there, if anything, it's kind of like, it, guess there's nobody else to rely upon except each other right now. You know, we're kind of in a state of disrepair, and so if we're going to succeed, it's going to be because we stick together. And so that's that's what I remember. But for some players, it may have helped them for a change of leadership. Now, when was it though at Clemson that you decided that? I'm not going to try to pursue an NFL career. I'm actually going to go to law school. Or did you try to pursue NFL for a period of time? So my last game was on January 1st, 2009 versus Nebraska. I had the LSAT scheduled for February 7th. So I had five weeks to be prepared for this test. And so when I get back from Jacksonville, which is where we play the game in the Gator Bowl, I went straight to the library and started studying. And uh, I can remember taking a practice test coming up from the bottom of the library where you didn't have any cell phone service. And I had a text message from the Miami Dolphins special teams coordinator. And he says, stay in shape. You know, we want you to work out for us, uh, which was like a pro day. Basically, he would come into pro day where you, know, you do 40, you bench press, you do your, your jump, your vert, run some routes. And I was like, oh, man, maybe I need to be working out, too. <laughs> and so I talked to the special teams coach, and he said, yeah, there's a few teams that are interested in you doing basically a rookie camp. You know, I'm not going to be drafted or anything like that, but bring you in, give you an opportunity. And that is like, that is like the, the center of my life, the center of gravity is like, I just want an opportunity. That's all I need. Um, you know, I'll kick that door open if you crack it open for me. 
And so uh, I, I got a text message from the Dolphins, and that's when I was like, well, I'm going to start working out too. And so I'm studying for the LSAT, and I'm working out at the same time. And then I got a call from uh, New Orleans Saints. And they said, you're, you're on our board for special teams. I said, oh, this has this become very real. And then uh, instead of a coach this time, uh, uh, a recruiter from uh, the Broncos called me. And I remember where I was when he called me. And he, he did an interview, kind of like a background check on me and was again interested in special teams in a rookie camp. So I really, really wanted an opportunity in the NFL. I'd never got it, you know, it, it never came to fruition, which everything happens for a reason. Uh, and I ended up going to, to law school instead. But there was a period of time when there were teams interested, but it's kind of, you know, I, I relate it to when you're a single and you're dating and you're gonna, you know, you're, you're gonna talk to people and feel people out. I feel like that's what the NFL does with players. They're going to talk to them, they're going to feel them out, and then they choose the one that they like. And so they never pulled the trigger on me, but you know, they at least they entertained the idea. So. Was your passion waning, though, a little bit, <laughs> knowing that you were yeah. close to yeah. law school? Right. So I, I had an agent uh, at that time, and one of the things he proposed was that if I did not get signed to an NFL team for a rookie camp to go to Canada and play, I had to make a decision on whether Canada was in my best interest, and at that time I felt like I wanted to begin law if, if the NFL didn't work. So I thought about that pretty, pretty, pretty hard and prayed on just making sure I was making the right choices. Uh, but it, it ended up, if the NFL wasn't going to work, then I was going to go to law school. When did the military option come into play that you joined the Air Force? So I, I feel, and I still feel this way, that college athletes are perfect to serve. Uh, and it's, I mean, the structure is, is very similar to what you're going to experience as a college athlete. And so I, I think that myself, I had uh, some gifts and you know, some work ethic and some development through four years, five years of playing college football that I could apply to the military. And I would really like to see more people do that. It would, I think, enrich their lives, but also serve the country very well. And so I was interested in the military when I left, but I, I wanted, you know, I, I like the JAG Corps. Uh, it, the JAG Corps is the legal branch of the military where, you know, you can have some some responsibilities with regard to the law of armed conflict and the rules of engagement when you deploy to Afghanistan. And I felt like, you know, I, I could do that. And uh, so to do that, I had to go to law school. And so I uh, ended up graduating from Florida State, uh, a rival. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wore orange once a week while I was there. But again, they have a pretty healthy respect of Clemson. But yeah, I ended up you know, making that transition yeah. to law school. And, and then you serve in Afghanistan. Yep. So what was that time period like in your life? So uh, when I graduated from law school, I, I graduated with honors. Uh, I, I showed up to law school in, in a classroom with about 200 people, and I felt like everybody in that room was smarter than I was. But you know, I, I didn't think anyone in that room would work harder than me. And so I graduated from law school with honors, and then you know, it's not enough to graduate from law school, you have to pass the bar exam. And so I took the bar exam, uh, scoring the top 3% of the United States, and that was pure work ethic. And so when that happened, I had no commitment to the military at that point. This was still something I wanted to do. I had a job offer to serve in the Air Force JAG Corps, but when I passed the bar exam with the score like I did, at that point I, I could have done a lot with my legal career. And my passion really is serving something bigger than myself. Uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with what you know, the foundation that was laid at Clemson, where you're, it's, it's not about yourself, it's about a team. 
And so I, I joined the military. I went to officer training school, graduated uh, from OTS, officer training school, as a distinguished graduate. Went to my first base where I was a company grade officer of the year uh, for the staff, uh, the fighter wing there. And while I was in Afghanistan, the responsibility was twofold, maintain discipline amongst our military members and to advise commanders on the law of armed conflict, the rules of engagement. So when we have an airstrike and the, the military engages in a lethal operation, we do it in a way that's consistent with uh, what society recognizes as lawful and legal. Because we, if we are going to engage in a war and represent our country and, and if we're going to hold the moral high ground, we have to do it the right way. And uh, so it's important that we have lawyers there to advise commanders when we're doing this stuff. And uh, so I'd advise these, you know, uh, the tip of the spear type people and the, the rescuers, uh, trained the special forces in Afghanistan on the rules of engagement. I went to the Afghan Air Force and trained them on the rules of engagement, the law of armed conflict. And I felt, uh, in, that, in those moments, I felt um, more self-worth than I probably ever felt in my life because I felt like I was making a difference. And it's amazing, I mean, we talk about sports, but I think, I honestly believe when, when you look through the trajectory of my life, that, they, that sports served me well in that environment, uh, that, that it provided me structure and teamwork and selflessness, and, uh, and, and, and in a lot of regards, it, I think that benefits the country. Uh, so it's all, it all ties together. In talking about serving others, so is that why you had this decision of, I want to yep. be in politics and run for Secretary <laughs> of State in South Carolina. What was behind that yes. decision? So it, it is related to military service in my mind, where you know, you're serving something that's bigger than yourself. That's what fulfills me in life, is making a difference for others. And I'm, I'm really just throwing my hat in the ring and being a candidate, and if people are receptive to it, then great. You know, I would love to work hard, meet this opportunity with the same hard work that I've, you know, met every other opportunity in my life that we've talked about, and I'll do that. You know, I, I'm willing to work hard to make a difference, and I think that's where we can have a, a better society is where you have people who are willing, and I admire everybody. I mean, my opponents, I, it's a crowded field. There's, there's four other candidates. But on every ballot and every race, you have people who are willing to make a difference for their state, and I'm just one of them, right? And if people are receptive to my resume and they're, you know, they're interested in me serving, then I would love to, to do that. I would love to be able to make a difference and serve something bigger than myself. But at the end of the day, if, you know, and I'm sure my campaign strategist would tell me not to say this, if I don't win, <laughs> I, I will be the biggest cheerleader for whoever does. Because it's a team, right? Like, we're, you know, I'm, I'm a, a candidate in the Republican Party, and if there's another Republican that goes serve in this position, it does not serve the party well or this country well if, you know, it's divisive after that happens. And so it, it is, it really is a team effort, and I'm just, you know, one player in the team that's asking for an opportunity to lead in the team, and if it's not me, then it's somebody else, and I will, I will support that person as much as I can. What about why? Secretary of State, though. Yes. Why did you choose that? So, Secretary of State is responsible for citizen services. There's that is like the intersection of a big intersection for business, at least, between society and government. And I feel like there's an opportunity to make a difference directly for citizens. I can work directly for them. 
Uh, and there's an opportunity, in my opinion, for an immediate impact. Uh, and what do you mean an opportunity? So wh where do you see so the, these opportunities? So the incumbent, he's been in office almost for the entire like internet revolution. And so, in, in, in my view, uh, the past 16 years, the office would not be as um, technologically advanced as it could be in 2018. And my position entirely is, you know, I, I would like to take it to the next level. I would like to bring us into the 21st century, and I think I have views in which I can do that using today's technology that we already use as consumers. I mean, today, as a consumer, things are pretty efficient, and there can be cost savings from, you know, internet purchases or whatever it might be. Every aspect of your life is in, it's touched somehow through digital. Uh, and the government is so divorced from that today. And for whatever reason, you know, I, I don't want to you know, rest it all on, on the incumbent because you know, he's, I know he's doing his best and, and he wants to make a difference and he's, he's committed his life to serving the state. I just believe there is more opportunity. You know, so even if you believe he's done a great job, we can take it to another level to bring your government citizen services to be married up with how we interact in every other aspect of our life. As a consumer, where we communicate with family using our mobile devices, things are much more efficient with today's technology. And so I would like to see that implemented in government. Now, the way in which I can do that is the Secretary of State's office. I don't get to do that if I'm the State House or I'm a Senator. I don't get that same immediate impact as, as I would in the Secretary of State's office. And I would love to see that have a trickle effect through other aspects of government. When you think about, I mean, every other interaction you may have with government, whether it's DMV or you're permitting for your business in local government or municipality, I think we can be this, um, like, like a tip of the spear where you're like, hey, that's successful in the Secretary of State's office. Let's do what they're doing. And so that's, I would like to see, I mean, I, I think big, I'm very optimistic, but I would like to be able to use this as a platform to impact things beyond this office too. And so my focus is, you know, make a difference for the state and I hope people are able to see the difference that I make. And if, if they, you know, if they value it, you know, I would love to, to, to have their support, um, whether it's, you know, I, I'm a term limit myself in this office. Like I, I, I don't want to stay in this office as long as the incumbent has. I don't think that's good for society where, you know, complacency sets in with a certain amount of time. And uh, unfortunately, we see in, in government, uh, when time passes, corruption can, can, can leak into, you know, it just happens. It happens with time. I'm not saying anybody's a bad person because of it. It's just, it's, it's inherent with long-term career politics. Complacency does happen. It does. You know, yeah. it's, it's very easy to fall into patterns in which maybe there's, things become stale and stagnant. And so um, I, I would hate to stay in this office for beyond uh, eight years. Uh, and, and so that's, what, that's where my mind is right now. Making a difference for entrepreneurs. You know, it's, just, it's Really, I see this office as the first place it is, the first place an, an entrepreneur goes when they start a business after they talk with their family. And I, I would love to be the person that meets them and makes a difference for those people because the better business environment we have in South Carolina, it's, it, it's better for everybody. You know, if you have a father or a family member that's starting a business and you get government red tape out of the way, you really, really can allow a person to focus on their business. And if they're successful, you know, they serve as an inspiration to their community, as to their family. And, you know, government doesn't serve as an inspiration, but if, if I get the government out of the way, we can inspire each other. Uh, so that's, that's my focus right now. And now you've been around Coach Sweeney, as we've talked about, who is 
an encyclopedia for words of wisdom. Yes, <laughs> and yes. that's another thing that I like to focus on. So what about you? What are some important words of wisdom, yeah. mottos, quotes, phrases that have yeah. meant a lot to you in your life or just life advice that you'd like to share? Yeah. Yeah. So one of my favorite is nobody wants to put the overalls on. Or, you know, when, when you go to work, you put your overalls on, you're working on the farm, but everyone's playing Saturday, but no one wants to put the overalls on. And so that's kind of my, my visual for hard work is like, you know, just, just get up, put the overalls on, start, start working the field. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the type of thing that, that resonates with me, the visual aspect of it all. And it goes back to that work ethic that you talked about. It's yeah. putting in the hard work. It is, yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it, that has a lot to do. And, and that's kind of the center of gravity of, of who I am as a person. And so that turns into the center of gravity of a campaign, right? The campaign's about the candidate and you're voting for a person. And so when you think about, you know, work ethic and stuff like that, even if it is outside politics, I still think it's relevant to my campaign. And speaking of the campaign, I know another person that's going to be helping yeah. you tremendously on your campaign yeah. is your wife, Erica. Yeah, yeah <laughs> right? she is. Former Miss South Carolina. And I know she's very yeah. well known around the state to yeah. see her in the entertainment business. Yeah. So how did you two meet? <laughs> Through Tommy Bowden. Uh, so when I was at Clemson, I, there was like an FCA event at his house. And at the time, Erica was Miss South Carolina, and so she was there. Uh, she had speaking engagements throughout the state, right? This just happened to be one day when we are in the same place. So that's the first time I met Erica, it was 2005. Uh, but we, it's, it's, it, there's a lot I admire about Erica, and, and probably because I see how hard she works in, in her life. Uh, she, gra- she went to Furman. Uh, she graduated with a degree in fine arts. She's an opera singer. She, her voice is, I mean, it is... That is incredible. Thankfully, I get to hear it every day. She <laughs> sings at First Pres, so if you want to hear her sing, uh, down in downtown Greenville, First Presbyterian, in the choir, and every once in a while she'll do a solo and brings everybody to tears, and then they get back to the message. <laughs> so we met in 2005, stayed in touch. You know, I, I kind of had my own path. I was focused on, on achieving my dreams in life, and she was doing the same for hers, which included... Singing in the New York Philharmonic, she's still in contract with them, and she lived in New York for a little while because of it. She's been in radio. Anything to do with the microphone, she will, she will, she'll grab it and run with it. Uh, so she lived in Nashville doing country type stuff, and then when she was doing that, she just somehow transitioned. Uh, she'd basically do red carpet stuff for these uh, country music CMA awards and stuff like that. She's also, as Miss South Carolina, has traveled the state. You know, it's. It's too big to drive, but too small to fly. And so she's done this once or twice. As she was Miss South Carolina twice, actually. It's, uh, in the Miss USA program in 2012 as well. So we've got two overachievers in the family, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, right? Uh, I can only, if I could keep up the air, I'd be doing just fine. <laughs> well, I did you a disservice because yeah. you're a good looking guy as well. So you, you two are a great couple. Yeah, we appreciate that. So she's been valuable to me in that regard uh, in terms of just, you know, making sure that I'm able to get my message out uh, because she's able to get her message out when she was Miss South Carolina throughout this entire state. So uh, she makes a big difference for me in, in this campaign. So. Well, I also did another disservice uh, by yeah. just calling you Nelson. Yeah. Captain Fairber, yeah. thank you so yeah. much for your time. I, I, I greatly appreciate it. Thank and uh, best of luck on the campaign trail. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. I appreciate your time. 
Pushing through barriers in life requires dedication and belief combined with a work ethic that allows you to keep moving forward regardless of the limits that you might face. And while Nelson firmly believes in term limits politically, it's his own work ethic that will allow him to continue exceeding limits in life. Now that finishes episode 56. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. Thanks for listening. 